0: This is the Bell Books and Stories podcast with me, Kay Hutchison. Welcome, you're listening to the Bell Media podcast. This is Kay Hutchison with Books and Stories, where I take a look at some great books and the stories behind the books. In today's discussion, I meet two special guests who are leaders in their own quite different fields. Dr. Dina Glauberman, psychotherapist, psychologist, creator of the idyllic holiday centre on the Greek island of Skiros, and herself an expert in how to improve your life. And Bruce Daisley, tech business leader, ex-European VP of Twitter, an expert in how to improve workplace practices and bring enjoyment back to the day job. He also has a hugely popular podcast, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat, and both are authors of best selling books. To me, Bruce helps companies and their people become more successful. Dina is much more about how the individual can fulfill their life's purpose. Looking from the outside, their inspiration seems to be very different, but they both want to improve people's lives. And so I'm interested in discovering where the touch points might be. Where do they divert? And where do they come together? But there's so much more to discover, as this whole area about life, work and mental health is going to become even more complicated in the coming months because of COVID-19. We're not able to socialise normally. It's difficult enough just walking down the high street now. How is lifting lockdown really going to work, never mind trying to get down to serious business as usual? And what is all this doing to our mental health? I can't think of two more knowledgeable people to ask. So let's find out what Dina and Bruce can tell us about the future and how best to tackle it. Really delighted to be able to talk to you together today. The issues of life and work and our mental health and wellbeing are definitely top of mind for many. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thank you for joining me today, Dina and Bruce. Hello. Hello there. Hi. Lovely to have you. I'd like to begin by asking you to think about emerging from lockdown. Uh, Do you think, going through all of this, that there are lessons to learn for our work, our lives and our mental health? I mean, what sort of things would you like to see happen or change when we eventually do? Bruce? You got some thoughts
1: there? Yeah, I mean, I am fascinated with the idea of emerging from lockdown because, um, firstly, you know, I, th- I think it's going to be increasingly clear to a lot of us that there's going to be little returns to this, and normality is unlikely to return in in any. Genuine form, you know, conferences are gone, sporting events, the, you know, forget about finishing the Premier League. It's a question of when they'll be able to start next season. Uh, So normalcy is gone. But the really critical thing is what's happened in the meantime. And while we were all... Um, worried about our parents and in sort of existential dread. Uh, Office culture, as we understand it, has been completely obliterated. Let me give you some evidence behind that. So the, uh, the chief exec of Morgan Stanley, he says he's done a personal 180. It's clear to him that an office footprint is no longer required. I spoke to someone yesterday who is very senior at a major British media outlet, he said that we've got 1,300 people that come into this building every day. In the last eight weeks, we've had 30, and the product hasn't <laughs> changed one jot. Uh-huh. And all of these things are going to contribute to the very fact that this, uh, something has taken place in the world of work. And we've realized that technology is such now that whether we like it or not, and whether we harper back to an era when maybe we we witnessed a certain Sort of office communication, but we're we're in an era now where finance directors of every firm across the country and and across the world are going to be thinking, right? We're on the verge of the biggest financial collapse and and depression that any of us will see in our lifetime. We need to find money, and that lease that we're about to sign so, suddenly seems to be a touch too generous. We work have said that eighty percent of their their clients globally paid their rent. In April, and I suspect that that number is only going to decline. There was another stat that I yeah. saw yesterday that Google were on the verge of signing a two million square foot lease in the uh, in, in Silicon Valley, and they put the the hold on that because they, they've already announced they're not asking their workers to go back for the whole of this year. Twitter have announced that they're not asking their workers to go back ever.
0: I know that's really strange, isn't it the i the idea that they've they've made this decision now. Um, for the future is quite incredible. I mean, think back a few months, we'd never have thought this would happen.
1: Yeah. And and I think, you know, we're witnessing in front of our very eyes, a, a complete collapse of worker culture that we knew it. And the question then becomes, not will life change, but at what stage do you realise the world has has transformed? And I think these you know, We'll go on to talk about this, but these very strong lessons that we can look at. But any of us who aren't thinking right now, how am I rebuilding a new long term culture? And we're, if we're rather more in the middle of firefighting and trying to make do and and just trying to to try and preserve the semblance of order, then we're missing the opportunity that other firms will be pretty much trying to reconstruct their culture from scratch.
0: Absolutely. And and Dina, what do you think are the lessons and the things that you would like to see happen after we emerge from this, whenever that might be?
2: Yes. Uh, let me talk a bit more on a, a sort of personal and also maybe a bit on the global level. I'm, I'm not uh, so involved with the office culture, haven't been for a while, but um, I would agree with Bruce that this idea of after the lockdown is a a strange concept because I don't think there is an after the lockdown. It's a sort of a slow emergence and some of us will be much slower than others and what we'll see will not look like what it did did look like. And I think one of the things uh, for people personally is that people have gone through a whole cycle of adjustment and they've gone through the pain and the anger and the and the disorientation and so on. And hopefully by the end, we'll get to a new normal only for that to be completely disrupted again, when the life that we haven't had recently um, changes and and becomes something else. And so again, you know, you go to the office if you do, and, and you get angry about why do I have to do this? Um, in the same way that you were angry when you were home, and why do I have to live like this? <laughs> so we might be going through the same process again. And I think also um, if we think about the people that I've talked to um, in various groups about what people have experienced, which they want to keep afterwards, is they want to keep a cleaner environment, but of course it's only a drop in the bucket to what we need, Um, they want to keep a world with more community, so there's more support for local people. And also, there's more of a sense that we connect with people across long distances, that even though we're so-called socially distanced, that's only physical, but that people are often feeling more connection with people who they're not in physical contact with. And I think that's quite important. And of course, the sense of community... um, which I set up in Skiros, and and generally I I work with in my groups and, and, and communities is I think a basis for people's um, individual mental health, feeling that they're part of something, part of a community. And the other thing that people say is they haven't been feeling so driven, and that they can enjoy their food more, and that they can walk or meditate or or get closer to the people they live with or accept themselves more. And uh, this kind of idea, present moment, wonderful moment, this feeling that at a time of uncertainty, which which is a time when we don't know what the future is, we need to experience our present moment. And um, I, I think that also is something we're going to feel for a long time, because I think the
0: uncertainty will continue. Indeed, indeed. I I'd like to kind of touch on the books because some of the some of the the themes that you've been talking about there i'm very aware are actually in your books so um dina you you've obviously written several books um, life choices life changes the joy of burnout yes you are what you imagine and into the woods and out again and that brings all the strands of your story together in what is really quite a remarkable memoir about your life and career as a psychologist and psychotherapist. But what I took away from the books is that burnout, and it feels a bit like that to me now, it's a very up and down for me, so I have good days and bad days, but whatever form it takes, it shouldn't necessarily be seen as a problem. And it could be that there are ways in which to see this as a a kind of positive for you personally. Is, Is that right? Um, is
2: definitely right uh, that the people who I interviewed after burnout almost all felt grateful for the burnout. Um, So let me just say a couple of sentences about what I think burnout is, because I think that will start to make sense. Um, In in my view, it's not about working too hard or being too stressed or not having a work-life balance. It's about a fundamental feeling of your relationship with what you're doing and that the typical burnout person is a very remarkable person who gives and gives and gives and achieves 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 and then something changes either in themselves or the environment and um their heart goes out of what they're doing and if they drive themselves forward anyway out of fear of losing something really important for their identity, like being a success or whatever that would be. Um, If they drive themselves forward, but they now are divided against themselves, what happens is that they eventually burn out. And then they have a choice. I should say we have a choice because I burned out as well, (laughs) um, which is how I know all this. And uh, we have a choice is to say, Dr. Doctor, make me better uh, so I can go back to what I was doing and the other one is what I call radical healing is saying we need to put a new show on the road and to do that I say this little mantra stop give up hope give up hope that anything you thought was more important than life itself is going to happen and keep the faith you'll still be okay
0: Gina, yeah. can I just bring in Bruce there because sure. one of the things that I'm thinking when I'm listening to you describing burnout because as you know, I had that as well, but I very much see myself I mean Bruce, I absolutely love your book The Joy of Work. It's a great business book. I, I see it as a kind of self-help book. It's funny. It's upbeat and not at all preachy and full of really well-researched ideas. And and you're you're very buzzy and full of energy. And I was that way for a long time in my career, and then things changed. But I was wondering if you could tell us what it was that made you want to write the book in the first place. Was your experience of work the catalyst, or is it just that you have so much to say as a person?
1: Uh, It's a degree of all of those things, really. So I was witnessing in people around me. I, I worked in a series of jobs. And I think, you know, what, one of the interesting things is that they used to say that half of all American chief execs had had once worked in McDonald's, that they're almost, you know, we all had this grounding doing service work and actually sort of this these immense um, satisfaction that comes from doing service work well. And it's a good grounding for sort of learning about the uh, the dynamics of human interaction. And, and I did plenty of jobs in those organizations. And the thing that always struck me was, it was really clear when I joined a new restaurant or a new a new place I was working at, it was sort of almost tangible that within three or four hours, I knew how much fun I was going to have there. Really interesting. And so I found myself um, maybe thinking like everyone that when i had the opportunity to join first google and then twitter that maybe these companies had all of the answers on workplace culture and making work more satisfying rewarding stimulating creative and the thing that i was confronted with is that they have no more of the answers than any other workplace (laughs) so so look one way or the other sort of through self-education I actually uh, with a team of wonderful people, we fashioned a really wonderful culture at Twitter and at YouTube actually, the culture was quite famous that I created at youtube and um, we we fashioned a really good culture in both places and then, about three or four years ago, a combination of events, but mainly things that I chose to do um, that probably I thought were the right things to do in the in the when confronting a crisis. The culture took a turn for the worse. And and I immediately thought to myself, right, I want something that's instructional. I want a guidebook. I, I almost want a cookery book. I want a cookbook that's <laughs> going to tell me what actions I need to take, you know, a cup of flour, a pinch of this. I want to know specifically what actions I can take and uh, that I could find no such thing. But what I did discover that is that when you immerse yourself in psychology and, and organizational behavior and all manner of, of um fields there's there's no shortage of work done into how we can make work better and just so little of the evidence reaches anyone in any sort of uh role in work and so that became my driving factor i was like i was determined to firstly unearth what the truth was about some of the things that we were doing and then to some extent try and popularize it and you know if if anyone doesn't necessarily want to um, d- delve into to buying a book. Most of the stuff is on my website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com. You can see most of the interviews I conducted are conducted there and, and uh, a lot of the work I've done is there. So, you know, if anyone does have an interest, I, I feel very resolutely that we need to try and arm not just bosses, but everyone who participates in work with the information how to make work better.
0: Yeah, I think what's really nice about your book as well is that at the end of each chapter you have a little summary of things that you could you could try. And as I say, it's not sort of saying, oh, you should do this. It's like these are the sorts of things that you might want to try. I mean, I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by your bad boss helpline, which <laughs> is hilarious because it's mainly hilarious because you think, oh, you can't possibly do that. You can't possibly clipe, which is a Scottish word for tell on your your bad boss. But of course, the whole point is that the, the bad boss gets delivered a copy of your book yeah. which, is just, which is just really a really sweet ending which I love very much but you you also talk about many methods like silent meetings and uh, quietness and then you do talk about the importance of meditation if that works for you as well so I actually think that it's quite it's quite a rounded um a, and sort of holistic approach in that book but um I guess I'm sort of thinking to myself, were you also, though, wanting to change your career? Because I I get the impression that you were so driven by the ideas of work that you actually wanted to leave and, and talk about it and do podcasts about it and write about it and talk about it.
1: Yeah, I mean not consciously. So I started the podcast um about three or three and a half years ago. And, you know, I I've only just recently left Twitter. So there was there was definitely no master plan. Specifically when I started the podcast, it was sort of an act of subversion because I um I wanted to fix the culture. I believed that some things were slightly out of my control, whether, you know, you, you're part of a big organisation, you need to defer to some overall decisions. And I, I felt that if I could evidence what I was doing, then um, then it would make it easier for me to build something that was a bit more coherent and, 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 a, and a bit more cohesive, actually. And so it, it was sort of... It, an act there and and largely what's happened since is that you know it became sort of number 1 bestseller it was the the best selling business hardback last year in the UK and because it sort of developed uh, a bit of momentum i've sort of found myself you know exploring more avenues and being more interested but um you know i remain now as inadequate in having a life plan as I ever had (laughs) when I was 16 or 17.
0: Yeah, indeed. Dina, can I just ask you, because I think one of the things that so so many uh, people, my my business partner in in our little publishing company called me this morning and said, look, I just had this random conversation with a friend yesterday. And I said that you were doing uh, an interview with with, uh, Dina Glauberman. And he immediately said, "Oh, I went to Skiros; it changed my life." And, and I, I know it's changed many people's life. I know Jimmy Carr ended up change, changing his career to become a stand-up after just one trip. Can you tell us what is Skiros? Why do people love going to Greek island, and why do so many people change their life and approach after that? I, I went there, and I can tell you, it, it really is a wonderful experience. But but tell us something about it, Dina, because you set it all up in the first place.
2: Okay, thank you. Yeah, we set it up in 1979, which uh, sounds like wow. ancient history. <laughs> <laughs> it is over 40 years ago. And um, I think at the time, it was a really a kind of a courageous and rather remarkable thing, because we were at the forefront of the, of the culture about what you do on holidays and about uh, alternative things in general. And what we wanted to do is to set up a world that heals basically, a temporary world. And, and the thing about holidays is they are perfect for temporary worlds because people go away for their holiday and anything magical can happen in that time. And so um, it included all the ingredients that we thought that you needed
0: to restore yourself to yourself so can you, can you list those? Because for me, I did yoga, creative writing. Um, there were lots of holistic treatments. Um, but there's also an element of, of psychology that kind of came naturally with the community.
2: Yes. So the elements um, are firstly that it's in a beautiful place on a Greek island. And Greek islands are always magical. <laughs> but... Um, and Skiros is, is 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 was and still is a very unspoiled place, so you can feel the ancient quality of it. So that's first. Second is the community. It's probably the most important thing about Skiros is that from the minute you get there, we are working to create a different kind of environment. I think it's a bit like Bruce was doing in his work environments. Um, I, I'm sure he did it quite differently, but in Skiros from the first day we're creating a new culture so that people can end up being in a community where they feel and our little slogan is they can be themselves in the presence of another and so it's a really it's a place where you can be authentically yourself people don't necessarily even know what work you do how old you are or all the normal status things third as you say are all the courses and they range from psychology to windsurfing to meditation to yoga to mosaics, to writing. We have um, a writer's lab and and many famous people have come there. And you mentioned once uh, Sue Townsend, who was a friend of mine. And Sue loved it because she could be herself there. And people didn't just relate to her as um, a famous person. She told me how she systematically defamused herself. Which she wasn't that successful at, but she did it so that she could walk in the street and people wouldn't recognize her and make a, a big fuss out of her. Uh, so um, and but but as you say, almost everybody I know who's been to skiers and I know an awful lot, and I meet them all over the world, they always said to me. Skiros was the best holiday I ever had, and it was a turning point in my life. So I think that, or, or I laughed more than I laughed anyway. And I feel that is basically because of the community. that if, if you get to a deep and authentic level with people, then it's more fun when you go out in a, t- t- a taverna or go on a walk or go for a swim. It's altogether a deeper experience, even in the parties.
0: Mm. Bruce I was just wondering have you ever been on um, a holiday like that or some kind of retreat yourself I mean I, I went on lots of business things um, when I was doing my media career but they, they were not like that at all they're much more formal and I don't think quite as effective but I- I'm just interested if you've had an experience like well, that Well
1: seducing us with stories of uh, <laughs> Greek islands are you really <laughs> rubbing the salt in I think <laughs> Um, thank you. That I'll put that on my list for 2022. <laughs> yes, um, yes. You know, I've, I've never been on anything like that. But the one thing that I am struck when you said it is that um, the, the one thing that I would often recount, you know, one, one of the, the, the ways that I assessed that I'd created a good culture and I'd created a good working environment is that I used to say to people, people would say, what do you love about your job? And I'd say, you know, I laugh, I laugh all day, every day, I I laugh all the time. And, you know, there's a fascinating... Um, I mean, there's some wonderful work into to laughter. The, uh, the one, of the world's leading experts in laughter, passed away just uh, about six months ago. It was a, a professor called uh, Robert Provine, a fascinating guy. He said that there was somewhere in the the order of around 100,000 academic papers on anxiety and depression, and around 125 on laughter. We sort of regard it as almost a trivial thing, too, too ridiculously inconsequential to to look at but what you discover about laughter is that it's not only is immensely enjoyable, but it sort of acts as a human bird song. It sort of signals togetherness. And the one thing that I do think that maybe has happened to all of us right now and yet we haven't noticed, it's like the uh the end of the sixth sense. We we haven't reached the final bit where we realise that we're dead. But the um the the big thing that's happened to us all right now is I suspect the amount we laugh has gone down. Why? Because you know, if you if you're sustaining a full-time job that you're on Microsoft team meetings or you're on Zoom calls through a lot of the day and they're not very mirth filled. And then we go back to our email and, you know, whoever we're living with, of course, you know, there's there's immense value in the companionship of the people that you live with. Um, but also, you know, it's it's the novelty, it's the crackle of new, it's the it's the, the the explosive revelation of someone sharing a hilarious story that happened to them that day. And and when we're with people all the time, we just don't get that. So I, I do wonder if you know we will reflect back at the one thing that we will ache for and the one thing that we are mourning is that laughter has probably become a a less significant part of our lives right now.
0: I'm just thinking, though, that apart from laughter, um, and obviously I'm uh, sort of really interested in lots of therapies. And my book was about all the different things that you can do at a period of uh, crisis um, and Apart from laughter, which I absolutely agree with you, I think one of the things that really helped me was all my friends having some ridiculous experiences and laughing at myself, really, at, you know, here was somebody who was going through this complete life change. But apart from laughter, what sort of things can we do? What other things can we do to help ourselves prepare for what's coming? Because I think we do sort of have to, think about how we are going to maintain our sanity and ourselves, um, especially people who don't have the luxury of of living with others. I think you're right, Bruce. It's wonderful if you've got community around you and friends and family, but a lot of people are living alone. So what sorts of other things can we do to prepare ourselves for the next year to year and a half? Dina, you can please please
2: what I would say is that one of the best ways I know how to work that out, which is how I worked it out for myself, was I do a sort of visioning exercise. And in this exercise, I put myself or other people a forward six months or a year, but to two futures, one in, in which I'm happy because I've honored my true self and I'm enjoying my life, and one in which I'm unhappy uh, because I've neglected my true self or I've gone the wrong direction. And then in each case, we look at what's the most important thing that makes me happy or unhappy. And also, what did I do to get myself there? And in fact, um, I was starting a new book for some time before lockdown. But in the first few weeks of lockdown, I just sat there and I thought, who cares about books? You know, I just, yeah. I just couldn't see the relevance of writing a book or doing any big project um, at that time. And then finally, after four or five weeks, I did one of my own exercises. I put, for the first time ever, I put my own CD on and I put myself (laughs) forward into the future, a positive future and the negative future. And the negative future was me not having written this book. So... um, So that's what I decided. And the positive future, I felt so good about having worked on it. And so I started working on it the next day. And so I think it depends on the person what they need. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to say what you need when you don't know what it's going to look like. And so I think that the visioning which engages your intuition is a much better guide for each individual person, because it will be different for each individual person,
0: than me saying, I think you should do this or do that. Yeah. And that is really interesting. It's also sort of this thinking about meditation and meditation types of exercise like yoga. But Bruce, apart from laughter, how do you cope when the stress gets too much? Because you are extremely busy. So you must have times when it's actually too much, maybe going off the scale.
1: The, probably the thing that I'm I'm sort of most intrigued by is that humans, even the introverts amongst us, derive far more of our energy than we might admit from connection and feeling an affinity with people around us. And you know, I was really taken. I, I talk about it in my book as a sync, human synchronization. But um, we we seem, you know, if any, if you've ever exercised alongside someone else. Or you've gone to dance classes with someone else or you've um, you've laughed with them at a comedy uh, event. What you discover is the endorphin levels in our body surge and we we perform better or we we actually enjoy it more. And so humans derive um, a lot of energy from other people. And it's just worth reminding ourselves the 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 impact that has there was a very memorable part if anyone has read, read Johan Hari's Lost Connections which is superficially a book about depression but really it's a book about this sort of human experience and he he describes one piece of research in it that's such a vivid um, description that I think it stays with everyone who talks about it and he he says that people who live alone are inclined and they're prone to have what he calls micro awakenings if you live alone if you sleep alone you're likely to wake up about 10 to 15 times a night um why because atavistically sort of as a throwback we we are programmed to self protect ourselves and if you live alone you need to ensure that you're not being um attacked and and i think It just gives you a reminder that human beings are social animals. And so right now, anything that affords you that degree of sociability can be immensely powerful. So, you know, I'm not a big mindfulness person myself, but I know that people get a lot from it. But right now, adding more solitude uh, might not be the, the first thing that I would reach for. I'd be thinking about Um, What are the things that forge connections? I saw something brilliant by the editor-in-chief of one of the big news uh, publications. And she said that we've discovered the best thing for us is we take time every Monday morning at 1130 to get together as a team to talk about what TV we watched over the weekend. (laughs) Now, it it no doubt wouldn't sit on anyone's productivity diary. You know, they wouldn't be sitting there saying it's a hack for you to get uh, more productivity out of you. But it's just a good reminder that that actually when we feel more connected to other humans, we just perform better. And so that's what I would be saying right now. What are the yeah. things that in the absence of being around people can forge sync between you and your colleagues?
0: Yeah, and actually that comes out very strongly in your book. It's a kind of constant theme about shared experiences and, and also meeting, physically meeting together with people now obviously we're, we've got a real challenge on at the moment and what I'm finding about even you know the zoom um meetings and classes and all that there's just far too much out there you really have to focus on what you really need and not just join up everything but I am very aware that obviously our social media and all the, the usual, you know, opinions, political, div, you know, diversity, equality, mental health, all those sort of things, they're becoming very, very over the top now. And actually, I, I just sort of think there's, there's an overload of opinions, but they're also getting quite extreme and divisive. Does anyone else feel like that? You know, because we, we do need to find some sense of balance and a sensible way forward with things not being, being too extreme, I think, online.
1: Uh, I, I guess you know what what we're witnessing is that there is, there is a polarization of of opinion you know the radio talk show commentator calls it as a footballification of politics where <laughs> we tend to pick one dog in the fight whether we're pro brexit or or pro remain whether we are uh, pro boris johnson or or anti boris johnson we pick a dog in the fight and we seem to stick with it with far more um rigidity far more dogma than we ever would before the uh, the sketch writer for the daily telegraph commented exactly the same he said you know through all the era of blair and and john major um people could recognize there were things that they did well and things they did badly to remind you when we went into the gulf war which is probably the thing that stained tony blair's Reputation more than anything else, but if you polled people about the Gulf War before we went into it, seventy percent of conservatives believed it was a bad idea, and seventy percent of Labour supporters. So it wasn't polarised at all about what party you were supporting. It was merely about the the rightness of the issue, and that's no longer the case now. These, um, you know, increasingly we we do find ourselves seeing our opinions as a construct of our identity. And, you know, so consequently, those things are reflected in social media, but they're reflected also in the uh, in the discussions that you might find yourself having with, with friends and family face-to-face.
0: Yeah. Um, Dina, I want to ask you, because one of the things that I've been witnessing, um, I mean, actually, friends that I can see on Facebook, they're actually falling out. Things have become... Really, um, in the public eye. So, uh, you know, arguments and things that might have happened um, around the sort of dining table or in a meeting room, they're actually, they're actually happening before ever. I mean, literally, people um, being uh, abusive and actually being, uh, you know, having arguments and following up falling out with friends on online i mean i'm just interested in what you think about that and what we can do about it because i think it does need to be in some way mediated or moderated
2: um i think what occurs to me about it all is as you say that they're doing all this in the public eye and if you do anything in the public eye it becomes more extreme and, and you're aware of your audience and so on. And so I think the answer is not in the social media first, but in your relationships with people, not through social media, that you keep up the connections with people that are on a deeper level or more authentic or in which you're really sharing how you feel. Because a lot of this argument is a displacement from the feelings that you're having that you're not talking about and not wanting to think about. I was going to say earlier about what Bruce was saying about meeting on Monday morning and talking about the films we saw. Um, One of the things that we do um, in, in Skiros and in other work environments, which I'm in, is we have these things, which we call the ecos group or the home group. And so even in a work meeting, the first thing is you go around and you may spend a minute saying where you're at. And then what happens is that you can download a bit of, of what's happened um on the way to the meeting for example and then it doesn't become part of the agitated conversation in the meeting then people have said what they need to say they've been listened to they've been acknowledged and they can go on and talk about other things so it's really important that we don't think our social life is being met by social
0: media because it isn't that's really interesting i i wonder if it's if actually everything's been fueled by this constant underlying anxiety that we all feeling wh- about the, about the unknown and fear of what might happen before it happens, um, and actually just that that story about friends of mine falling out. I mean, actually, what they decided to do was have a proper call online, a video yeah. call, and sort it out. So it's just like everything that's normally behind doors is actually really out in the yeah. open and it's it's quite amazing to see at this time.
2: Can I just say something? Um, I don't think the anxiety is only about the future. It's also about the present. We're in a situation we've never experienced before and and that makes people anxious.
0: Yeah. And some of some of us more than others. I was just thinking, Bruce, about, you know, this fact that, oh, it will be fine. We can all work from home. But actually, not all of us can work from home. It's it's only a, a percentage of of the population, isn't it?
1: Well, resolutely, and and you know it's it's economically stratified. It's I was on a sort of seminar last week, and a business school professor said, "Well, you know, as we're into week six, week seven of the lockdown, I think all of us have got our home offices sorted." And you know, the, I think the word for that is called privilege, because if anyone's found themselves talking to well the the vast majority of us but you know people who are in their 20s 30s will find that people are, are routinely working from their bed they're finding themselves working maybe from a chair in the, in the bedroom or from the lounge and you know it largely depends on who you're living with never did your absent-minded selection of housemates become so consequential so uh, i think um you know the the idea that somehow this is going to be equitable for all of us is is really unfair. The challenge of course is going forward a lot of the, these big discussions in the office real estate market right now uh, what the what will happen to the market the the market overall for for office space is you know trillions of of pounds globally and um a small disruption can massively disrupt it and the one thing that a lot of people are wondering now is will companies just halve their office space. Very easy for everyone to just halve it. Go down to hot desking. We've already got about 10% less space than we had 10 years ago. So going down to hot desking is a, is a good financial saving. All those things work. Um, if you If you say to people, okay, well, you're now doing knowledge work. You can work from the Highlands. You can work from the Pennines. You can work distributed. But what we're likely to do is create a solution, which is a halfway house, which is to say, I would like you to come in for meetings on Tuesday and Thursday, um, and then you can work from home. And the impact of that will be that people are not liberated. They can't go and work from the counties of of Northern Ireland. They can't find themselves uh, building themselves a little cottage by the beach somewhere. In fact, they, they need to try and find a way to commute in and the rest of the week probably hunker down in the in the lounge and so i think if we do this as a halfway measure it's likely to end up over time with a number of us thinking you know i'm going to join a place that's got a bit more of this baked into its dna
0: yes indeed oh that's that's absolutely fascinating but can right? i just add something
2: here as well um about the office um and the working from home and that again that doesn't apply to everybody. Some people have to go to work in order to work. They have to be doing, uh, say, manual labor or service work or whatever it is. There's an awful lot of people who can't work from home. And they and these are the people that are going back to work, whether they're sick or whether they're healthy. And, and so we have to remember that the lockdown and so on has affected people in such different ways and that and that it's a bit like one of these games of statues where you play the music and it stops and wherever you are you are and for some people that's great it's a house and a garden and a a lovely happy family but for some people
0: it's not like that yeah it's really showing up the the inequalities. it's really showing
2: up the inequalities yeah yeah
0: I have one uh, final question to ask, and I wonder, um, uh, Bruce, if you could answer this first, and then uh, lend on Dina. But what do you think you're both be doing in five years from now? I mean, will be new books?
1: What's in the crystal ball for you? I mean, maybe it's the time and place we're in, but I'd quite fancy being still alive. You know, I've (laughs) I've lowered my hopes. You know, I mean, my goodness, maybe I'll have got to go and see your Greek island. I, I, for, for me, I mean, look, you know, I'm interested. Look, you know, I, I sort of wrote a book out of curiosity, but more than anything, I've, I've become fascinated with just the exchange of ideas, really. So, you know, a bigger thing for me about than writing a book right now is that you know people have been subscribing, going to my website, and subscribing to my email, and actually, I love the dialogue, and I and I love actually the uh, the need to sort of rehearse thoughts in real time to think about what's happening to us now and try and work out the uh the impact of it so you know not necessarily i mean i i am writing another book but i i'm i'm more intrigued with trying to play a part in helping shape this new world of work and, and make it agreeable for everyone you know we've talked about the economic inequities and more than anything i would love to see positive outcomes coming from this
0: Lovely. And and Dina, what, what about you for the next five years or five years from now, thinking about your image work too? Yeah, the
2: interesting thing is that um, since this period of the virus, I haven't done a five-year forwards <laughs> image because it feels like one year is about the most I can manage. And, um, and even then, I'm really looking at my attitudes and... Not at what's going to happen. So, if I think of five years from now, I'm reminded of of the uh, sort of guru non-guru, Krishnamurti, who was asked, "What will the new world be like?" And he said, "If I knew what it would be like, it wouldn't be new." And um, and that's the way I feel about five years from now. I hope it'll be nothing that I could predict from now because if it's something new I'll be very excited and be still alive and enjoying life. If it's everything I thought it was going to be uh, that seems a bit same old same old and it's less interesting even if it's very nice it's just not magical and magical for me is always discovering
0: something new and different. Wonderful. Um, Thank you so much. That's an absolutely brilliant place to end. Dina and Bruce, thank you so much for being so open and giving such a clear insight into your work and, and inspiration as well. I just want to close by mentioning the best places for people to find out about you and your work. Dina and Bruce's books are great reads. I can vouch for that myself and they're all available online. To find out more about Dina's work, check out dinaglauberman.com and to find out more about Skiros, look up skiros.com and Bruce has absolutely everything on his website, eatsleepworkrepeat.com and I'll add these links to the podcast for anyone who wants to find out more. Thank you to my guests, Dina Gluberman and Bruce Daisley. Thank you very much. Thank you. And Thank you so much. And finally, I would like to thank you so much for listening to the Bell Books and Stories podcast. The producer was Perrin Sledge and I'm Kay Hutchison. Hope you'll join me next time. Bye for now.